Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ipsos podcast. Uh, we're going to talk today about the latest on public perceptions of the NHS and social care. I think with the well-documented pressures that the NHS and social care are facing, from a combination of pre-existing challenges, but also obviously dealing with the impact of the pandemic, it's a really important time to understand the public's perceptions and expectations of these services. I'm Kate Duxbury. I'm a research director in the health and social care team at Ipsos, and I'm joined today by some esteemed colleagues. Um, So if you could introduce yourselves, please, starting with Anna. I'm Anna Quigley. I lead the health and social care team. Um, For many years, we've tracked public perceptions and experiences of uh, NHS and social care services. Hello, I'm Tim Gardner. I'm a senior policy fellow at the Health Foundation. Uh, an independent charity committed to better health and healthcare for people in the UK. Lovely. Thank you. And Dan? Hello. Yeah, I'm Dan Wellings. I'm a senior fellow at the King's Fund, again, an independent charity. Um, And we also, I think relevant to this conversation today is that we work with NatSEN on the British Social Attitude Survey, uh, which measures people's overall satisfaction with the NHS. Today, then, it's going to be based heavily on some recent polling that Ipsos conducted for the Health Foundation. Tim, I wonder, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that briefly? Yeah, so um, we are very interested in, in, in national policy making and improving that. Um, policy is often uh, political and it's often driven by public perceptions, or at least what policymakers assume the public think. Um, For us, in all of our work, it's important to have um, really good quality evidence, and that that includes um, evidence on on public attitudes. I think that's especially important at a a time like this, when we are hopefully coming out of the pandemic, although it's continuing to be a bit of a bumpy exit so far. Um, That pandemic has obviously had major consequences for for NHS and, and social care services, and will continue to do so for some time. The pandemic is going to have a, a long-term impact on our, our health and well-being. Um, we've got uh, Westminster, a government that has very big ambitions for health and care, uh, is clearly eyeing the next election, but will also have some very big social and economic issues looming that it will need to confront. Um, our interest is is not just in what the public think now, but also how that changes over time. So we're really delighted to be working with with Ipsos um, on our policy polling programme. Our plan is to do uh, four surveys over the next two years. Uh, The first round we did late last year, and I think you're going to mention, talk about that a bit uh, in a bit, Kate. Um, And we've got another round coming up in, in, in the next few months as well. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, that that first wave that we did, um, just to give some context, we carried it out over Ipsos's knowledge panel, which is an online panel, uh, random probability. So it's a gold standard online panel. And that fieldwork happened at the end of November 2021, just tipping into early December. And just to remind people of the context, it's difficult to keep up with the shifting sands of the pandemic. That was just as Omicron was starting to spread, but it was before the government had announced um, the restrictions that came in in December around Omicron. That's what was happening at the time we were asking people these questions. So to start off with, if we think about expectations of the NHS, we were really interested in tracking 
how people think the NHS has been doing over the last 12 months and also how they think it will do over the next 12 months, uh, thinking that those expectations might be shifting quite rapidly at the moment. Um, and we're creating a new expectations tracker so that we can follow that every six months. And we found that current expectations of the NHS are pretty low. So 57% think the standard of care in the NHS has got worse in the last year. 43% think it will get worse in the next year. So the public, they're a bit more optimistic about the next 12 months than they were the last 12 months. But still only 18% of people think the standard of care in the NHS is going to get better over the next 12 months. Perhaps not surprising. I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Well, I, I think it's undeniable that the, the NHS is, is in a pretty poor place after years of austerity with, with capacity not keeping pace with demand. And, and then, of course, the pandemic. So it's not a huge surprise that people are pretty negative about the overall state of the health service. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's interesting that people are the least pessimistic about the quality of care that they get from hospitals, from, from their GP when they actually make it in through, through the door, um, and are generally more pessimistic about access. I mean, that, that's probably not a surprise given that we've got over 6.1 million people on the waiting list for routine hospital treatment, that there are pretty massive pressures on, on general practice. But perhaps what's most striking are the, the concerns about workforce in terms of, of numbers of staff and, and, and workload. Um, the health service went into, into the pandemic with over 100,000 vacancies and by international standards, the UK has got very low numbers of, of doctors and nurses um, relative to our, to our population. Um, so in, in that context, it's really quite puzzling that we've we, about the continued absence of a, of a national workforce strategy when clearly increasing staff numbers and reducing workload are major public priorities for the public in themselves, but are also such key enablers of, 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 of wider priorities as well. So you picked up there, Tim, on access and also on staff shortages and staff well-being. Uh, Anna, I don't have we got any other data from Ipsos that talks about those kinds of priorities for people? Yeah, so I think one thing that's particularly interesting about the expectations tracker, um, sort of more widely, is it it really shows the the fact that it wasn't straightforward during the pandemic and. Um, it's shaped by things other than sort of absolute experience. So <clears throat> things like access and perceptions of what's going on really shape it. Um, so our data going back a long time before the pandemic um, tended to show actually growing satisfaction, a sort of slow increase in satisfaction overall. Um, so people tended to be pretty satisfied with what was happening at the moment, but really worried about the future. And they were always worried about the future. And it was like the future never quite came. And actually what we've seen in the results now is that um, people are starting to say things have got worse and we still think it's going to get worse as well. Um, you, you mentioned just how many people are, are, um, had said that their experience or that things had got worse over the last 12 months. So that's, that's really high and so much higher than we saw early in the pandemic. Um, and that's, what, that's the thing that really stands out. But we're also seeing that people um, are returning to sort of those pessimistic levels um, of expectation about what will happen in the next 12 months as well. And m lots of that seems to be related to access um, workforce. 
Other surveys that we're doing at the moment are showing that workforce is key. It comes up time and time again. If, people, if we ask people what are the biggest problems facing the NHS, they talk about waiting times, but they also talk about staff well-being. They start to talk about um, just numbers of staff, not having enough doctors, all of those things. It really, um, it's a really clear finding at the moment. So yeah, it absolutely backs up um, other results as well. And one of the, the many reasons you're here, Dan, is, as you said, the King's Fund have just released some data from the British Social Attitude Survey. Wanda, can you tell us a bit more about that and how that compares with what we found with the Health Foundation? I can. I think in terms of the British Social Attitude Survey, it's, it's important to this data tracks back to 1983. So... What it gives us is exactly that time series that we've been talking about, which is how can you see the attitude shift and change over time? And I think this conversation already is what's behind that? What's driving it? And at any one time, there's often different factors that are driving that. And it's sort of sometimes unpicking that using the qualitative work that people like Ipsos Mori do to really understand what is driving public perceptions of the NHS. So as you say, Kate, we we published um, very recently the British Social Attitude Survey, and I think, you know, it undeniably makes for fairly gloomy reading, I'm afraid. Uh, overall satisfaction with the NHS has fallen to 36%, which is a 17 percentage point difference on 2020. So it's really, it's the sharpest fall we've seen since we've been tracking that in 1983. And actually it's the lowest level of satisfaction since 1997. Um, and we can probably discuss this, which is we've been here before, you know, it's, it's really gone down a huge amount over the last few years and particularly the, the last two years. We're seeing that fall in satisfaction across all ages, income groups, sexes and supporters of all political parties. So it's fairly universal. And I think it's really helpful in this conversation to unpick that. I think on individual services, again, we're seeing that the same very, very sharp falls, most particularly around GP services. And. I thought from your polling uh, with the Health Foundation, Kate, the, the really interesting distinction there is between access to care and quality of care. Uh, and that really spoke very loudly to me when I looked at your findings, which is, I think a lot of this, as Tim has said, is around people trying to get in, you know, and I think we can go back on this, but actually during the course of the pandemic, we saw huge amounts of support for the NHS and particularly its staff who were held in such high esteem and people accepted we were asked to protect the nhs and people did um you know the gp patient survey shows that lots of people avoided making appointments for fear of being a burden on the nhs for fear of infection but we're seeing we're now seeing the legacy of having to deprioritize de certain care and treatment to to leave people on waiting lists as the nhs really had to focus almost all of its attention on treating COVID and subsequently vaccinating people against COVID. And you can't move all that activity to one area without there being a downside to that. And I think that's what we're seeing. Again, I think it's really helpful to, to think what was going on when you were asking people these questions. Sometimes quantitative data can feel really abstract, can't it? You know, just percentages. And it's it's really what was going on at the time. And our field work was, um, in September and October last year, just before you went to uh, field with your poll, <clears throat> debate raging in the in the media around access to to GPs and around face to face appointments. As Tim has said, you know, almost at the time we were there, almost six million people on a waiting list. Roughly four in ten people, you know, either on a waiting list themselves or a family member. And it's this tension between people understanding what the NHS had to do to get us through this period and the legacy that's left for people who, and families 
who are worrying and are suffering uh, with people with deteriorating conditions. So gloomy reading, I'm afraid, Kate, in terms of where public satisfaction is and really interesting question about what's driving that. And you flagged a few of those issues, including workforce, which, again, our survey showed was a, a really key issue for people. Thank you, Dan. That's a really helpful run through. Um, I think linked to that. So one of the findings that really stood out to me from the Health Foundation polling was that the public are really divided about whether or not the NHS provides a good service nationally versus locally. So we have 44% think the NHS is providing a good service nationally and 42% it's providing a good service locally. But Anna, I know in the past we've seen a bigger distinction between those two, haven't we? I wonder if you can talk us through that. Yeah, so what we've seen in the past is very much that people are positive about their local services. Um, so linked to what I was saying earlier, people are um, pretty positive about their own experiences, about their own local services. You then have a bit of a gap and people are slightly less positive about the national NHS, the NHS at a national level. And then they're less positive again about um, government and whether it's got the right policies for the NHS. And what's really interesting, as you said, is that that gap seems to have narrowed in this most recent polling. So actually local services are being rated um, much more negatively in line with sort of those national ratings that we've seen before. And that is really different from what we've seen. And I think speaks to a lot of the things that we've been talking about. It's just, it has been difficult. The, the, the pandemic has put a lot of stress on services. People are seeing that in their local services. They're hearing stories locally about it. And that um, seems to be playing through to these figures. Um, and so they, um, it will just be interesting to see what happens as we go forward. Um, and I think that's something we really do need to think about. We were talking about um, concerns about what might happen in the future, but it's really interesting that that's lower. Um, the proportion of people saying things will get worse, that's actually lower than the proportion that have said it's got worse over the last 12 months. And I think there's a question for us about, are people really prepared for what's to come? We've talked about the number of people that are on waiting lists at the moment. Um, and actually, as that plays through, it's likely that things won't get better. So should we be having a more honest conversation with people about what's going to happen and what they're going to be seeing in their local services? Tim, I know you've done a lot of work on elective care waiting lists in particular. I wonder if you've got any reflections on that? Well, I think it, there's a really interesting contrast in terms of managing expectations when it comes to between elective care waiting lists and, and what we're seeing in, in, in general practice. So um, on hospital waiting times, the government has actually been quite bold in acknowledging that, that you know, weights are going to get worse before they get better. But, you know, the waiting list may well keep growing until the next election. Um, we've got a, a major backlog that's going to take years to address. Um, and, and, and one of the really interesting things that came out of, of NHS England's recent elective recovery plan was highlighting that there are still some really big major unknowns about just how big and complex a problem that we've got. We don't know how much of a, an impact the pandemic's going to have uh, over what the NHS can do over the next few years. We know also that, as Dan mentioned, there are millions of people, um, missing patients, uh, as, as we, we've, we've occasionally dubbed them, who either couldn't use the health service or, or, or decided not to. Um, at, at some point since since 2020, and we don't know when 
So if those patients will come back onto waiting lists and we don't know when and we don't know what condition uh, those people will be in when when they do. Um, but when it comes to to GP appointments, actually, that this is an area where I think arguably the government has chosen to fuel expectations, if anything, rather than levelling with the public about about some of the pressures on 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 general practice. So, I mean, in many ways, those are, are, are sort of the same thing. It's COVID again and infection control. GP workloads are are absolutely spiralling, partly because GPs are, are managing more patients who aren't able to access hospital treatments in a timely way. Um, general practice is, has, has been working incredibly hard to deliver COVID vaccination and boosters, um, albeit possibly not always in, in, in plain view because a lot of that has been done by, by neighbourhood networks of, of GP practices through mass vaccination centres. Um, there are also big problems with, with recruitment and retention. Um, but almost overnight, in response to to some of the media campaigning around um, problems accessing face to face appointments, government's policy flipped from you know digital by default to uh, to bashing GPs for for not offering a certain percentage of of appointments face to face. Quite a lot to unpack there, I think, Tim. Uh, Dan, did you want to add? Yeah, I think it's a really important analysis that Tim's made there, which is <clears throat> distinction between being really honest about waiting lists. And they're not going to get better anytime soon. And as Tim said, those people will still need to go somewhere. You know, if you're on a waiting list, it's just not you're just not just waiting. You're still accessing care. Uh, you're deteriorating, and and that will increase the burden on GPs. And there has been a it has felt like there's a difference in the rhetoric around this uh, expectations management. And I think this is really key. It's re- it feels really key to me that the government and the NHS are honest with people, and that the NHS isn't going to get back onto an even keel anytime soon or use the word normal whatever normal might mean um and by giving the impression that things somehow can get back to normal are you further raising expectations about what the service can actually deliver so you may even see falls in satisfaction because you've raised those expectations further and this feels part of what is a recovery from a pandemic, from something the NHS has never faced in its history and largely dealt with uh, in a way that was hugely supported by the public. Your own polling during the pandemic showed that, showed that people were really behind it, the clap for carers. But it seems like a long time ago that now that people came out on the streets to, to thank NHS and social care staff to remember what they did for us during the pandemic. And clearly, you know, even if you speak to GPs, they have had staff off themselves. They've had absences. They've they've had all the experiences that we've had as individuals in society, whether it's from homeschooling through to partners being off. You know, it, it, everyone's faced different things. And I think that's where the challenge of some of this lies. It's the tension between people's quite reasonable frustrations of conditions that have deteriorated care that's perhaps been allowed to progress in ways that it wouldn't have been in pre-pandemic times and how do we have that conversation that doesn't ratchet up expectations doesn't lead to a blame game and I think that's the other concern that if the government and the NHS can can stand behind this debate and say this is not a blame game where we're looking to to see who's at fault here but actually working together to really bring people with them as the system starts to recover. 
Super interesting point, I think, about how expectations are going to develop and how that's going to interact with uh, how services are actually delivering. But Anna, we know, don't we, that the public have got a special relationship with the NHS? Yeah, so um, we know from polling um, over many years and also qualitative work that we do with the public is just how proud they are of the NHS, um, how much they value it, how much they value the staff who work in it. We ask a question about um, uh, Britain's National National Health Service being one of the best in the world, and that that figure stays up there even um, pre-pandemic and into the early pandemic. It was as high as it's ever been. Um, I think that relationship with the staff is particularly important. Um, and it's really important to separate possibly access from the quality of care and the interactions that people have with the staff when they get in the door. I think we've seen that in our GP patient survey. Um, so this is a survey that we run every year asking about experiences of GP services. Um, and we saw a really interesting path through the pandemic. So we saw that ratings of access were declining pre-pandemic. So things like getting through on the phone, satisfaction with opening hours, um, ease of making an appointment, all of those were declining year on year pre-pandemic. Then that was reversed um, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2021. We saw that all of those measures um, increased and we saw that we think there's some gratitude bias in there. Um, we know that, that, you know, we were talking about the clap for carers. There was something about these staff are, are helping us. They're getting us out of this pandemic. We're so grateful to what they're doing. Um, and we know that that's there. We've done some analy analysis of the 2020 data, which spanned the first lockdown. And we saw that during that first bit of lockdown, people were more positive than they had been just before the lockdown. But we do know that access is really important. So the story during the pandemic, so that, that fieldwork that took place in 2021, it was really positive, but it was really nuanced. So things like um, ease of getting through on the phone and satisfaction with opening hours did increase, but we did see a, de a continued decline in things like helpfulness of the receptionist, uh, being able to use the website, um, and quite a large decline in people, in the percentage of people saying that they were able to see their preferred GP. Um, so I think it shows that sort of there was a mix of fewer people going to the GP, so they were able to get an appointment a little bit more easily. Uh, people being at home, so they could, you know, they were a bit more flexible. Um, but it also reflects that change to uh, online triage, I think. And at that point in the pandemic, people were maybe a bit frustrated with it, but they were prepared to accept it. Um, and there was something of a grace period, I think, because of that relationship with the NHS and the gratitude towards it. What will be interesting, and more recent data that we've been discussing here suggests that possibly that's waning now. Um, and we'll have to wait and see what happens to the GPPS results because it's in field at the moment. Um, but one thing that's really um, stood out for me is even through that time where we were seeing declining access figures, we were seeing things like ratings of confidence and trust in the healthcare professional um, and ratings of whether your needs were met. They stayed just as high. They were still at like 95%. Um, so it'll be really interesting this time to see have they continued to hold up? You know, we've been talking about the pressures on GPs. So that actual interaction with GPs, has that stayed as positive um, whilst we know that access has been declining? Yeah, just to pick up on the, because I mean, I think, you know, certainly from looking at the BSA results, the primary care is a key issue, you know, whichever way you cut the data and looking at your data, it's a key issue. 
And just to bring, come back on that face to face and, you know, as Tim said, digital by default, which we were moving to before the pandemic. I think this sometimes is a really unhelpful debate. It becomes very binary. You know, it's kind of face to face or, you know, and actually the work that's been done by people like National Voices and Health Watch England shows much more that it's a personalization and choice agenda, actually. It's about what works for different people at different times. And you can get status quo bias and change. You know, people almost default to what they've already got. But people have to think about their own experiences in this. We often talk about, again, in this in the abstract, that sometimes face-to-face is absolutely what you need. But sometimes a telephone appointment is fine. Um, Or speaking to someone or that online triage, as you talked about. Health Foundation, YouGov published a poll a while ago now, which said that 65% of people wanted face-to-face appointments. But actually, when you look at the recent analysis done by uh, colleagues of Tim at the Health Foundation, if you ask at point of care, that number comes down considerably. And again, it comes back down to this isn't face-to-face or something else. It's around a range of different options. And it's the difference between national policy and local policy that it's working with people and communities within your area to understand what's going to work for them. If I was working at a practice in a sort of central London area with a a relatively young population, working population, I may have a different offer from if I was in East Dorset or uh, maybe uh, somewhere with an older population that had different needs. And having, as ever in the NHS, that one size fits all is, is really unhelpful. It's really thinking through what is appropriate uh, for the population that you're serving. And I think we're still in the early foothills of that. And I think that the debate on face-to-face or bust is a really unhelpful one. I would agree with that. I think from from my research, that nuance is important. So even for one person, whether they have a face-to-face or a telephone appointment differs depending on how they feel that day or what their condition is. There's a lot of nuance in there. Tim, I know you've been thinking a bit about uh, GP appointments. Yeah, so... I think the the nuance point is really important. I think I think Dan explained it really well that actually, when it comes to um, thinking about GP access, there are a huge range of different factors that come into play um, in, in terms of you know the, the mode of appointment you have. Is it face to face, over the phone, over a video screen? Um, it's, is it at a convenient time in a convenient place? Are you getting to see the the professional you want to see? Are you getting to see the specific GP that you want to see? So there is, it is very much, I think, about trying to support choice and personalisation, as Dan was talking about, which, which will vary from not just person to person, but from appointment to appointment. Um, but when it come when we come back to you know, thinking about government policy on GP access, it, it tends to be very one note. Um, I mean, that note has changed over time. So if we could, went back 20 years, we'd be talking about, you know, speed at all costs, whether you saw a GP or a practice nurse. Um, if we went back 10 years, then the focus was, um, could you get an appointment in evenings and at weekends? Um, if we go back even, even you know, at 12 months, you know, we had a Secretary of State who was who was wanting to to push digital by default, as as, as I mentioned earlier. And we're now back on to, to face to face. So we've we've got this really interesting contrast between all of the nuance and the personalization that people really clearly do value and the sort of one note um 
policy process that only seems to prioritise one thing at a time. Um, and, and actually, it, I, I think GP, GPX is a really interesting issue because there has been clear evidence, you know, clear experience and evidence from the past where government has gone after an objective. So thinking particularly about you know, labour in the early 2000s, thinking people wanted speed of access. Let's speed up access. Let's you know, 24 hour, 48 hour access. And satisfaction actually went down, um, even though that was delivered on paper, because other aspects of the appointment making process um, were arguably neglected. And general practice is important, isn't it? Because it's the service, it's the front gate, it's the service that the largest population of, largest percentage of the population have used. And therefore it's what will shape people's perceptions to some extent. I'm aware we've been quite NHS focused. I wonder if we take a swerve and head towards social care and just look at what the data's telling us on that. Um, So our polling with the Health Foundation showed People are more pessimistic about social care than they are about the NHS. And actually, that's that's not new. That's also been the case in previous years. But people are more pessimistic than they were in May 2020 as well. Dan, how does that compare with the British social attitudes? Are you finding similar or different? I'm afraid that, yeah, I mean, the story on social care is, um, <laughs> if anything, I'm afraid worse than the story for the NHS. The um, satisfaction with social care is down to... 15%. Um, it's always been relatively low. I think it's really important to remember on when we ask quantitative questions on social care that the understanding of what it is, it's probably not quite as good as um, NHS services and certainly work that the King's Fund did with the Health Foundation uh, a few years ago now, Fork in the Road, did some qualitative work, much more of the work, you know, that deliberative work, really trying to work with people on what solutions might be. And what was really clear from that work was that you know people just don't have a really clear understanding of what it is. That being said, it has dropped and it's dropped considerably. It's the um, the lowest score of all the service we services we asked about in 2021. The main reasons people gave for being dissatisfied uh, were the pay, working conditions, and training for social care staff. I think I suspect that has come to the fore during the pandemic, um, particularly with all the emphasis on care homes and what people saw there. They also recognise that people don't get all the social care they need. And I think that's an increasing challenge um, and and one that you know is still being worked through in terms of the reforms and the levy and the cap and what that looks like. And it's not affordable to those who need it. And I think that's one of the challenges, isn't it, of social care is that it's often only when you actually really start needing social care for you or your family that you realise how difficult it all is. It's one of those things that you're not encountering. As you said, Kate, 86% of the population see a GP, you know, within a previous 12-month period. Social care is an area where you often only come to it a bit later in life. And it's only then you start to realise actually what a difficult system it can be to navigate. And I wondered the same as you, Dan, about to what extent do people know a bit more about social care now because of the pandemic and therefore perhaps perceptions are starting to actually match the reality potentially? I don't think we know yet, Kate. I think I think it's really, I mean, I'd like to do some work on it um, uh, and it may be that you guys are doing some. I, 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 I think that aspects of social care will be perhaps better known, certainly with the emphasis on uh, care homes and so on but social care isn't just for older people you know so- social care is for working age adults that need care and support and 
it's a whole range of different services. And I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet, Kate, is the answer to your question, uh, whether there has been. And it's been it's been an area that's been thought through so many times. Um, and again, it's that how do you have that conversation with the public about social care? And the best methods we've always found are much more those deliberative methods where you can really bring information to bear on this. I'm not sure it's an area that works as well with the, some of the polling data. No, I'd agree with that. Tim, did you have any thoughts on the social care elements? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I was reflecting on this um, the other day. And while NHS structures are bafflingly complex, actually the process of, of accessing NHS services is, is fundamentally quite simple. Whereas by contrast, social care is just bafflingly complex. There, there's, it's, it's far less straightforward what social care is, um, who, who gets it, who funds it and, and who provides it. So perhaps some of these differences are reflective of, of, of people, um, people's own experiences of, of trying to arrange social care um, or, or conversations with family, friends, neighbours about their problems trying to arrange social care. Um, over the last couple of years, we have also seen some quite widely publicised um, stories about about what's going on in care homes. So outbreaks of COVID, especially early on in the pandemic. There were some some story, quite a few stories over the last few months um, about the problems arranging social care for people who are, are stuck in hospital uh, waiting to, to, to leave. Um, visiting restrictions and you know some of the really heartbreaking photos of, of, of people only able to you know, see their elderly relatives through through windows have, have, have been they've been gotten a lot of attention. Um, I wonder also whether we don't always hear quite so much about the value of social care um, as, as as we could do. So there, there was a piece of work that some you know, colleagues at the Health Foundation did with 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 colleagues at King's Fund and, and Nuffield Trust quite recently to talk about you know, the, the positives and the value that the good social care can bring. Um, and, and that contrasts quite a lot with, with some of the language, um, including the language used by, by ministers to talk about social care. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister made a very high profile promise from the steps of Downing Street that he was going to fix social care. So if, if we're talking like this, perhaps people just naturally assume that if it needs to be fixed, then then it must clearly be absolutely broken. I think I'd add, <clears throat> I'd add to that, Tim, that the other key aspect is that, I mean, I agree in terms of the politics of this, that if you're entering an election, then saying you're going to give more money to the NHS is always something that you know will go down very well with voters. Social care can be different because it's not that well known. But I think what's really important to remember is that they're not, separate systems they're systems that work together at their best and some of the problems you can see in the nhs can be caused by the fact that social care isn't working whether that's because people can't leave hospital because there's nowhere for them to go or because you know some gps you speak to will say actually many of the challenges and issues that they're facing are actually more widespread, more around social care. They're not necessarily condition specific. They're around people's lives and what people need in place to provide them that care and support. So they're not separate entities. They're the, at the, they should be working together. 
And therefore, you know, the moves to integration make a great deal of sense with the, the bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. But at the moment, I think it's fair to say from both your polling and our polling, the public are a long way from being dissatisfied, a bit a long way from being satisfied with what they've got at the moment. Interesting to see how that impacts on overall perceptions at the same time though does it impact in the same way as perceptions of an NHS that is doing less well than it was do you have any reflections on social care Anna? I'd agree with everything that's been said I think the pandemic has certainly shone a light on social care services in a way that possibly hadn't happened before um, and on some of those the the poorer aspects of, of experiences um, I think we in the past pre-pandemic as, as we've been saying People often found it quite hard to comment on social care services. They didn't really know what it was. They didn't have experience of it. But we still see that in this polling, actually. So, you know, that 69% thinking it's got worse really stands out. But actually still people, lots of people say they don't know when you ask them about local social care services because they don't actually know what's happening in those services. So that sort of worse figure is just, I think, driven to some extent by just what they're hearing and seeing in the media, all the stories that we've just been talking about. Um, I think... One thing, just picking up on what Tim was saying about the value of social care, another thing that stood out for me in these findings was with the users of social care were actually more positive about social care than their friends than their friends and family were, um, which I think is a really interesting dynamic. So possibly those people who are the, the, the recipients of it, the beneficiaries of it, can be a little bit more positive about it. But it's those friends and family possibly that are trying to navigate the system on their behalf that are a bit more frustrated with it. Um, I think there's a lot of things in there. Also, there's expectations, isn't there? Possibly somebody that you care for, you have much more emotional views of what you want. You have higher hopes for what they might receive than compared to what you might accept for yourself, possibly. Um, and possibly it's not set up for carers. It's really difficult for them to navigate and they have that responsibility. Um, so I think, yeah, it, I'm, I'm not sure what will what will be the long-term impact of that. And I totally agree with Social care isn't necessarily a vote winner in the way that putting money into the NHS is, but they have to work well together. So it's a really tricky thing to get right. A tricky thing to get right. It feels like it summarises a little bit of the slight bleakness of the content we've talked through, just in terms of how the public are perceiving the NHS at the moment. I think there is a bleakness. I mean, I think, but it's you, you really, it's just so important to place it all back in context. You know, it was an NHS that was... Um, struggling before the pandemic, as we've talked about at the start of this conversation. Really important to, I think, you know, you, the Health Foundation polling and the BSA asked a really interesting question this year around the principles behind the NHS. You know, to, to what extent do people still think those free at the point of need, comprehensive, available to all, primarily funded through taxation? You can sometimes think, well, look, you know, does a, a huge fall in satisfaction, which we've seen unprecedented, um, does that mean that people want a different model? And the data seems to suggest that the answer to that question is no. So have people fallen out of love with the NHS? No, they do want it to work though. They want the model they've got to work and it isn't working for them right now. And it is the biggest single challenge the NHS has faced since its creation. It's where it's really useful to go back in, in time a little bit. And actually, yes, it's an unprecedented drop, in overall satisfaction with the NHS. We're back at levels last seen in the 90s. <clears throat> and if I could show you a graph, I would. But, you know, if you look at the, if you track the data from when the money started coming back into the NHS in around 2002 
as waiting times did come down, as more resources were put in, you saw an extraordinary rise actually, both in the work that Ipsos Mori did at the time on the public perceptions work and in the BSA. Over the course of that decade, from the early 2000s to around 2010, you went from satisfaction at a level it is roughly now up to 70% overall satisfaction with the NHS. So it can be done, it can be recovered. <clears throat> but the question is, it's going to take time. It's really reflecting back on that, not setting unrealistic expectations, being aware of the challenges that staff are facing and have faced during the pandemic, and being aware that behind all these numbers are really difficult stories of users facing huge challenges, both for themselves and their family. So it is a bleak picture, but I thought helpful just to, 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 to think about that question of, well, does this mean we tear it up and start again? The data suggests no, but there's clearly a lot of work to be done. A lot of work, but the historical context is really interesting as well, isn't it? And important to remember, it's not, it's not the only time we've been at a point where the NHS needs more investment, more staff, etc. Can I ask, can I ask Ipsos Mori colleagues a, a question? Because I think, you know, we often look at polling, public polling, and you guys do so much of it and do it so well. Have you seen this more generally? Because one of the things I've been trying to think about is, is this partly because as a society, we've, we've been through something so traumatic and, you know, it, it's sunny today when we're doing this podcast and maybe feeling a bit of a bit bright, but we haven't been, you know, people have felt quite bleak. And have you seen how would you compare what we're finding on the NHS to, to other polling you're doing in other areas of our lives? So um, I think it reflects a general pessimism, definitely. So what we've seen, um, work that we did at the end of last year showed that apart from vaccines, public ratings of government performance were poor on many different issues like climate change, education, crime, or you know, everything that people say that concern them. Um, so yeah, general pessimism. Um, we've also, in more recent data, seen that economic optimism is the lowest since the 2008 financial crash. 76% um, expect the economy to get worse in the next 12 months. So it's absolutely in line with findings across the board that we've got at the moment. So we should remember that. It's really useful context. And for you, Tim, what do you think the government and the NHS can take away from this? Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I would agree with a lot of what what Dan said actually there are if it, it's it can be hard to look beyond the sort of the, the all-encompassing bleakness that you know we've just spent the last half an hour or so talking about um but but there are some some reasons to be a bit more optimistic um you know there, there is you know, can, you know support for the founding principles of of, of you know, the model of, of universal health care free point of use and funded mainly from tax is, is still widely supported. Um, what our polling found is that you know, a majority support the decision to increase national insurance to, to increase funding for, for health and social care. Um, as, as Dan said, people don't want, um, according you know, this data would suggest people don't want radical reform. They want the system that they know and the hold and genuine affection to work better, which is, is I think, something really good and positive to hold on to because while there always have been and probably quite often always will be um, voices calling for more radical change, actually there's the evidence is pretty clear. There's nothing intrinsically 
better or or, or, or magical about the alternatives. Um, fundamentally, you you get what you pay for. Um, so, you know, there's also I think you know as, as Anna mentioned, some of the uh, results of GP patient experience survey do actually show that you know quality of care at the core is is still very well regarded. So this is a good foundation to build on. I think it what it comes down to is is trying to to manage expectations. You know, the public aren't blind to to the strains that the the health service is under. So let's level with people about actually what's what's possible for the health service to do. How can we support people what you know who aren't able to get as prompt a, a treatment as they as they might need? And actually, how can we set out a credible roadmap for how we can rebuild the service, support it to recover, and then improve access and quality to the level that people expect over the coming years? Great, thank you, Tim. I think that is a excellent conclusion for our podcast. Thank you. So if you want to see the, the Health Foundation polling data, that's on the Health Foundation website, or British Social Attitudes data is on the King's Fund website. I would like to thank Tim and Dan and Anna for all of that really interesting stuff to listen to. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing what the next wave of our polling says come May, June time. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.